Welcome to Stories of Recovery, a Mar Recovery Resources production from Mar Addiction Treatment Center. I'm Matt Shedd. We all face moments where we're completely overwhelmed by the problems we're facing. It just happens. All the strengths, tools, and strategies that seem to work so well for so many years that just helped us push through or deal with our problems, they just don't seem to work anymore. Depleted, desperate, and afraid, We know that asking for help is the only way that things are going to get better, but somehow it still feels like the last thing in the world that we want to do. Kimberly Alexander decided to become a therapist because she recognized the power of meeting people when they're in those moments. We discussed the importance of recognizing the fear that we feel in such moments is real, but by allowing the parts of ourselves we've been hiding to be seen in a safe environment, we can begin to heal and find hope. That lump in the throat, I have no idea of what the unknown is, is is real. However, the good news is that many have been in that same spot beforehand and were helped. And um, once you do make the step, while there are uncomfortable parts of it, that the other side of it is so worth it, and that it's a process that takes time, and you may not be okay, but that's okay but that's what it takes to get there. As the chief clinical officer at Mar Addiction Treatment Centers, Kimberly shares how she sees Mar as fostering a safe place to explore this kind of vulnerability and the growth that comes with it. Can you give me a little bit of context about, or give us rather, a little bit of context of your um, clinical background and and how long you've been a therapist and how you got into it and all that? Sure. I'm more of a a hybrid anomaly. Um, I have always been more of an analytical-minded person who focused on entrepreneurship, sales, and marketing. Mm -hmm. I always felt like those in the health profession were really well-intended, good people who were doing good work, but nobody knew where they were. Mm -hmm. And so it was more of trying to get people to understand how to find their target audience, how to, you know, how to reach the people they were trying to help. And so I had branched into sales and marketing from a pharmaceutical standpoint, and I always kept a neuroscience product in my bag. Mm-hmm. So it was either an antidepressant or an atypical, which is a, a um, antipsychotic medication. Um, and um, that's when I began to learn more about the disease state of depression and, um, and just behavioral health concerns in general. But then I learned while I was marketing pharmaceuticals that there was a whole population of people that were trying to self-medicate away their issues and concerns. And so I remember um, I did very well in the pharmaceutical industry. I was able to appeal to physicians and know the data and know my product and know the market. But there was something that I thought that I saw that a lot of people who did what I do didn't. And that was the patient on the other end of it, that person needing help. And so being the storyteller that I am, I created this, um, you know, this this way of communicating where you literally could see that person who needed help mm. and why it was important to help them. And so at some point, I did that thing that ridiculous people do where I hung up a six-figure salary 
and went back and got another grad degree because I was an MBA. Went and got another grad degree in marriage and family therapy, specializing in addictions and sex therapy and people who the world had discarded. Those were the people that I was drawn to and um, started making about a third of the money. Uh, married to a ridiculous man who was like, you know what, follow your heart. Mm. Um, we'll figure it out. And in doing that, I ended up um, um, working in various settings in behavioral health. So my training was in addictions and sex therapy, and I worked in various settings that was primarily inpatient behavioral health where they were doing um, crisis stabilization, detoxes, accidental overdoses, intentional overdoses, things like that. I also worked in partial hospitalization, which was, wasn't quite that high level of care, but still, in, you know, pretty intense, intensive outpatient. And then I had a stint as a clinical director, not only in an inpatient psych hospital, but also in an outpatient psychiatrist's office. And then I, um, in the middle of that, ended up managing a team of crisis counselors that worked in the emergency department. Um, overnights and uh, when people were just brought in by the police, by EMTs. And that's where you really get to the heart of where people are hurting and struggling. That's a big kind of leap of faith to switch from something you're well-established in, making a lot of money doing, to that. What was it? Was it, and I think you kind of mentioned this before, but it was kind of understanding the disease state of depression and really wanting to address that. Was that kind because I guess what I'm, I'm thinking is like to make that kind of a transition, you have to have something pretty powerful driving you, you know, to make that kind of leap of faith. Was it that addressing um, depression and was that kind of the initial fire that, that lit you to, to make that jump? So I'm not sure if it was that specifically because I didn't even look at it as a faith leap. Mm. I looked at it as there's a population of people who are hurting and their voice isn't, um, they're, not, they're not communicating in a way that they're heard. And there's a stigma wrapped around all of this so that when they finally get to a point where they want to say something, there's all these reasons not to. And so um, I wanted to have a voice for them because of my own upbringing of having not had a voice. I might not have been able to speak up for me, but I could certainly speak up for others. So I was not only selling an antidepressant, I was also selling a medication that was for, um, I was selling Zyprexa, it was for um, bipolar and schizophrenia. Mm. And of course, that's the kind of stuff that nobody really wanted to talk about, you know. But what I learned was most people had kind of fallen into this world of, you know, bizarre behaviors or psychosis because they were self-medicating on drugs and alcohol. And it was partially to numb them from what they were experiencing, but it was also partially because that's when they did kind of have a voice and felt empowered enough or bold enough to say something. Mm. It's just at that point what came out wasn't what people could hear. Oh, wow. That's interesting. And that kind of fits with what um, we hear a lot from people in recovery that it's like it it provided something helpful for them at some point, even though it might not have been, you know, ultimately it's destructive, but the substance can kind of like speaking to the example you just gave, it sounds like that that gave them an opportunity to empower them to say something that they couldn't say otherwise. And Drugs and alcohol are effective coping mechanisms. Yeah. It's just that there's consequences to them that are more de devastating than the disease state itself. Mm -hmm. But when you're desperate and when you're hurting and when you feel like there's no way out, you'll take any kind of relief you will. 
Unfortunately, there are a large percentage of people that don't understand that. And so along with that sometimes comes judgment, which perpetuates the cycle. Mm -hmm. So it's important for those of us who do hear to do something about it. Mm -hmm. And so what were some powerful moments for you, if you could share, like when you're in the pharmaceutical industry where you started kind of connecting all these dots? Were there like particular interactions with clients or just like in the education process where you kind of started to see like, oh, I want to go deeper into this? I think um, there's probably three (laughs) prongs to that. The first was um, it seems that those of us that get into counseling needed counseling ourselves. It's like we understand the client because we are the client. And so I saw a lot of it just in my peers. You know, I learned from one of my favorite professors when I was at the MBA program at Emory. His name is Jess Rosenzweig. And he's a brilliant man. He's the guru on global economy. I mean, literally his texts that he wrote were the ones we were studying from. And I was really stoked to learn from him. But he looked at us and he said that um, you'll learn more from each other than you'll ever learn from me. And I scoffed. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because I still have a great relationship with him now, but it was true. And so I realized you know, that the people I was learning in the classroom with were actually probably, you know, as equal uh, teachers as professors. So that was one thing. I saw the disease state up up close in people who wanted to not only help others, but help themselves. The second part was in the interactions I had with physicians and nurse practitioners, PAs, those in the medical field in talking about the medications I was selling. For them, they were looking for a solution for symptom reduction for patients who came in. But when you talked about the actual face of patients, what would happen is I would occasionally have doctors or nurses say, hey, can you come back? I want you to meet. And then they would introduce me to actual patients, you know. And when you see that the work that you're doing is benefiting actual lives, it is life-changing in itself. But when the lives that are being changed see that there are people who are fighting for them that they don't even know, it motivates them to keep going when they want to give up. So I think that was part of it. And then the third thing was a very selfish component, whereas, you know, I never want to knock what people do for a living. You know, if they're selling cars or they're selling food or whatever, those are important, Mm -hmm. essential, as we've seen even with COVID. Mm -hmm. But there's something about when you get the gift of operating in the life of somebody that the more you give, the more you receive. And I think there was a component of that that just felt right. Mm. There's a lot of we deal with a lot of co-occurring disorders here. More and, than we realize. Yeah. And so could you just kind of speak to that how depression because I think um there's a lot of confusion about that because just I used to work in admissions before I was doing this job and just so knowing from talking to a lot um a lot of cl- potential clients and then also their families that a lot of times people don't understand that there might be dealing with two issues at the same time. So can you can you speak to a little bit to that a little bit? So that's really it's really hard to allow someone the gift of seeing what they're really dealing with because before you can really do that, they have to be strong enough to see what's there. And most people don't want to look in the mirror. So it wasn't just antidepressants and atypicals, you know, antipsychotics that I was selling. I also sold an erectile dysfunction drug. Mm -hmm. I sold some heart drugs, you know, and those are disease states that are tied 
I mean, they're all tied to you and your your level of anxiety and depression impact that. Mm-hmm. You know, erectile dysfunction can be a blood flow issue. Mm-hmm. It is a blood flow issue. Mm-hmm. But do you know when you're depressed and anxious and have performance anxiety, that causes it mm-hmm. as well. So being able to talk about whichever safe topic is what was one of the most beneficial things. There really doesn't exist kind of a plain vanilla patient who's just using substances for recreational purposes. I mean, that does happen, you know, but at the end of the day, when you kind of peel back those layers, there's always something else going on. There's been a loss, a significant loss, maybe in a relationship, a a position, you know, like a job um, or um, some sort of trauma that's been experienced. But there's some precursor, some event has caused someone to feel something that's not okay. And what's interesting is every symptom that exists for co-occurring disorders or what we call dual diagnosis in the psych world, it's it's something that is a precursor, some triggering event, Hmm. right? And it just matters on how you heal from that event. So if you broke your arm and you just kind of held it to your body, you know, in a couple of months, the pain will go away. You'll have limited range of motion. That's why we go to the doctor and get mm-hmm. it set. Mm-hmm. But we're not really doing that with trauma and poor experiences. Mm-hmm. So as we all experience sadness, you know, anger, um, nervousness, the reason why it becomes a diagnosis is depression or anxiety, you know, or um, you know, operational defiant disorder, let's say, if it's a younger person, is because the length of time that we're experiencing those symptoms has spanned beyond what's, you know, scientists have deemed normal. Mm-hmm. And it's created a lack of ability to function in our normal environments. That's the only difference, but we all experience it. So if you lose a loved one, let's say, you know, um, your granddad died, you're going to grieve and you're going to cry and you're going to be sad and that's normal. But if he died in 1982 and you're still grieving and crying, then that's that shows that you didn't really heal, right? Mm-hmm. That broken arm, you just kind of stuck it by your body. And so what we're finding is when people are using substances, they kind of just grabbed the broken arm and didn't allow it to heal. Mm-hmm. And so it's now we have to dig through scar tissue. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the substance that they're using to help at least numb it or get through the day so they can function. But once we remove the substance, guess what's going to really rise? Mm-hmm. That original hurt. Right. And and I imagine all the damage that they've done with the substance, too. Mm-hmm. Like that compounds. I mean, because being uh, powerless over a substance is inherently traumatic, it would seem like. It absolutely is. And we're wrapped in a natural flesh body that's also being impacted. Mm. So if it's something where you've been a functioning alcoholic for 25 years, you know, you're an accountant, you go to work, you know, you're really only drinking on the weekends, Mm -hmm. you know, you really don't touch during the week. It seems like it's okay. But then as we age... Our bodies change anyway, and we've just kind of expedited it with yeah. substance use. So there's even more that's going on. And how do you think when your body's not functioning the same, it's going to affect your already foundation of anxiety mm-hmm. or depression? So in, in speaking to that moment, too, can you give examples of when, because I imagine a lot of, or I've heard from a lot of people that end up coming here, it's like they, they're they on the website, they're reading resources, they're trying to figure out, does this apply to what's going on in my family with my loved one or whatever. So when does, can you, can you 
describe kind of moments um, in working with people where things kind of shift from being I'm a functioning alcoholic or drug addict or whatever it is and things are kind of to that kind of desperation state? Because I imagine some people that are listening to this are probably observing that happening with their loved one or maybe even experiencing it themselves. Like what is that – what does that look like and what are some of the signs that, oh, maybe this is a deeper issue that I need to get some help for? Right. So it's a, it's a journey. It's a process. And it's very subtle. So the good news is that because of that kind of inherent spirituality that we all have, there's always a small whisper that kind of speaks to it a little. But it's very easy to ignore when the evidence is that you still are functioning very well. You're still successful. You know, you still are respected. It hasn't interfered to the point where um, there has to be an intervention yet. Mm-hmm. So that, that's, that's the dangerous and tricky part because that's what we can use to rationalize that, you know, this glass of wine that I have every night that's turned into two glasses that's now turned into the box. Um, it's just, you know, I've built up a little bit of a tolerance and now it requires a little more. It's easy to rationalize. So it starts out with recognizing that little voice that we're pushing to the side. Then if you actually take a step back and you notice we're rationalizing volume of what we're using, frequency of how often we're using it, and then there may be a statement here or there from others. So now when we're going out on business lunches, folks are noticing that we had three glasses of wine at lunch. Right. And so maybe they say something, you know, in jest or maybe a family member or loved ones now saying something because they're like, hey, you know, and you're like, no, because then you rationalize a little more. Unfortunately, what I would like to do is create a safe space where people can seek help and assistance without judgment before um, when they're recognizing these things, just to say, hey, not sure if this applies to me, but, mm-hmm. you know, I noticed that. Because people are shocked when you learn that, you know, anyone who's consuming alcohol on a daily basis, that's problematic according to the definitions now. Mm-hmm. It, it was just a glass. Yeah, but it's mm-hmm. daily. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if they have a safe space to intervene for themselves, that would be ideal. But generally, that's not what happens. What happens is on a day when they really weren't that bad. It was one glass of wine at lunch and a fender bender. And now there's a breathalyzer. So now I have a DUI. That's ridiculous because that moment didn't indicate that there was something wrong. But if you looked over that span of time, it did. Mm -hmm. And so what generally happens is some major loss, whether it's work-related, relationship-related, like I mentioned Mm -hmm. earlier, or legal uh, involvement, or they just completely overslept something that was critical. Mm -hmm. You know, it's you're 23 and it was your senior finals, Mm -hmm. you know, or you're, you know, we're supposed to be at this court date and you just didn't make it. Mm -hmm. Um, Those are the indicators. And you can explain it away, but if you got behind closed doors and really looked at it, you could see that if if I don't do something, something's going to be done for me. And I want people to know that when you intervene yourself, it is very uncomfortable. It's scary, but it is always better than when someone else intervenes. Because when someone else intervenes in your world, they always make decisions for you that you would never make. Um, And while it ends up being helpful in the end, um, it's a lot more I don't want to use the word traumatic, but it's a, ooh, it's a roller coaster Mm -hmm. to get there versus you kind of doing it on your own and saying, help me. Yeah, that, well, that's great. And I'm wondering if, if part of that process, um, intervening for yourself could, 
could part of that be maybe like picking up and calling somebody like our, our assessment counselors here who are experienced? I'm thinking about that might be a huge first step for somebody or even just sending a, a chat message yes. on, through our website yes. that's like, this is going on. Can we talk about this? Right. And, and because it's an admissions department, people will be hesitant to call uh-huh. because they think that means I'm going to be admitted. Yeah. When no, we're a resource. Mm-hmm. And if it takes a message through a social media outlet, you know, that's fine. But what's interesting is if you call our admissions department, they're going to talk to you about what you're experiencing mm-hmm. and have a conversation. Yeah, It's not necessarily that now is the time, you know, maybe it could be or should be, but at the end of the day, this is a voluntary you know, journey mm-hmm. that you choose, and but you want to choose it with as much information as you can by someone who can hear what you're going through. You don't have to sugarcoat it. They're not going to be judgmental, but they're going to help you. Mm-hmm. At Mar, it's not about, you know, the bottom line profit margin. I mean, we're nonprofit. It's about helping people, even if we're helping them to another resource. It's about helping them. That's a great point, and that's something I think that people might not realize how many calls our our assessment counselors uh, field where the pe- people don't end up coming here and they don't recommend even sometimes them coming here because of, you know, multitude of, of reasons. So the goal isn't always get them into treatment here. It's get them to a place where they can, they can be helped. And yes. It's a huge, it's a huge resource. And, and like I said, I, I used to do that. So it's like I would so many calls it's just a lot of a lot of the work is connecting people with other other places where where they can get the help that they need so yeah, but it's a huge risk yeah to say i've done this what's ironic is most people think they've said or done something that no one in the world would ever understand and they're hugely embarrassed by it but then what's really true is that so many people have done and said the same things. No matter what heinous thing you think you've done, it's been done before and people have healed through it in love. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Yeah. I'm really glad we're kind of zeroing in on that moment because that's where everything kind of hinges. Mm-hmm. Is that like that moment of, I know I'm starting to sense I need to do something Um but I don't know if I can say it out loud because my whole world might collapse if, yes. like, if I say it to this person and they reject me. Or so it, it might not even be a totally intellectual thing, but just like a felt thing. Like I cannot say this out loud, or else I just can't. It requires a lot of trust, mm-hmm. and you're trusting someone you, you don't even really know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what would you say to people? I mean, you've already said some of it, but what would you say to people that are in that spot right now who are listening to this? And it might not even be the person with the addiction. It might be the family member who's, you know, hid things or or felt complicit maybe and, and, and doesn't want and feels embarrassed about not having boundaries. Or what would you say to a person who who can tell they need to talk to somebody but is deathly afraid to talk to to somebody? Well, I'd validate that feeling. This is not easy. It is scary. It's real. It's not fabricated. I know there's that, that what is it, fear is false evidence appearing real. No, it's real. <laughs> because I feel it. Look <laughs> yeah, at my right, hand. Right. It's shaking. So, so one, I would validate that, um, that lump in the throat. I have no idea of what the unknown 
is, is, is real. However, the good news is that many have been in that same spot beforehand and were helped. So this thing works. The other thing is that, believe it or not, you know, God really does have people out there working on your behalf, even though they don't know your name. And so there are people that are praying for you and rooting for you. And um, once you do make the step, while there are uncomfortable parts of it, that the other side of it is so worth it. Um, and that it's a process that takes time. And you may not be okay, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. But that's what it takes to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a whole team of experts who have spent their lives dedicated to learning and growing so that you don't have to do this alone. Mm-hmm. I would probably say that. That's great. I love that you started with the validation, too, of that because that is real. Like the, I think in our results-driven kind of mindset sometimes in you know the modern world maybe or, or whatever, it's like, just push through that and do it. It's like, well, no, this is a real thing. You know, like we almost want to just push aside the feeling like, well, you just got to push through that and do it. And it's like, it's okay to recognize and feel and to admit to yourself, I'm scared and this is scary and this is a big deal. And I don't know how this is all like, that's, that's important. I think it's essential. It's critical. Um, And I think that we live in a culture where when things are uncomfortable, you try and quickly be comfortable. So if it's a medication you can take or if it's, you know, just just like you said, get through it. When honestly, it's sitting in it a little bit um, and growing through it that actually helps you change. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we're avoiding that, you know, essential piece of the process, then we're probably going to find ourselves in the same space again. Mm. And that's what's really hard because then you start to doubt whether or not it's possible for you. And so the way life really works is if we don't get this lesson right, right now, it's okay, but we'll find ourselves in the same, you know, in a different classroom, Mm -hmm. but the same lesson being taught. So it makes sense to go ahead and choose the discomfort of walking through it and then growing. Yeah. That's hard. Yeah. Oh, that's hard work. So, yeah, what do we, what do we learn in that moment of or several moments or however long it takes to sit in it like we when we make the brave choice to sit in this thing that I've done, you know, there's a feeling that I've set up all these things in my life to avoid and here it comes crashing in and I can't avoid it any longer. Right. And usually, I think a lot of times talking to people on this, you know, it's like a lot of times it has to do with shame, you mm-hmm. know. And so it's like here it is, shame and whatever else comes with that crashing in on me. What do we learn by sitting with that? You know, what do we – what is it that we internalize or experience that from that moment of, of just being okay with it and not fighting it anymore? I think we learn two things. I think we learned our humanity, that at the end of the day, we're human, and to be human is to err um, and grow. And I think we also learn humility, because sometimes the ego really gets in the way, and we're so worried about how we're perceived that we'll compromise who we really are. And so I think those are the two things that we probably gain. I'm sure there's more, but mm-hmm. those are the two that stand out to me most profoundly right now. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Um, 
And so then someone makes that call or has that difficult conversation or maybe reaches out to a therapist. They're starting to, okay, I'm going to, I'm admitting to myself that I'm feeling this way and validating that for myself. I'm reaching out and trying to share this to get some help because this is bigger than a problem, bigger than I can handle on my own. What does, at that point, say they end up here, what what does that rebuilding process look like for, you know, from your experience as a, as a clinician and, and all the different facets. And I know earlier we were talking about how you, you work in, you know, kind of the holistic approach, physical, Mm -hmm. how, what can you kind of give us a, an outline of how that rebuilding process can look for people? So there's, there's many steps. Um, there's a term that I use often uh, with clinicians or with anyone who'll listen to me, actually, um, <laughs> called equifinality. I learned that in one of my um, grad programs. And it's the concept of there's many routes to the same destination. So it's first recognizing that it's your route. Despite, you know, someone who may have used the same substances, been the same age, had similar experiences, they're not congruent. So it's first identifying that this is individualized for you. And that's one of my main focuses here um, with our treatment planning, that it's got to be specific, you know, to Matt, to Kimberly, Mm -hmm. you know, to Bob or Jill. The other thing is, and this is almost the um, paradox of how this really works, there's an absolute focus on your recovery, but it comes in the context of helping others recover. Mm. So there's a bit of, of... self-care that has to happen and self-care is not selfish but you also have to recognize that as you're growing and learning and healing through yours that part of your healing is in helping others and so I think that's why you know the 12-step approach works really favorably because there's a component of that um, that requires you Mm -hmm. you know to be integral in the healing of others Mm -hmm. I also think that It's understanding that there's a certain level of stamina and endurance that it requires. And I say that because those are words that are physical, Mm. right? But they're also emotional and they're spiritual because at times you'll grow weak and weary. And and that's a part of this process. There are times when you're going to throw your hands up and say, I can't do this. You know, and I always discourage the words like can't. Mm -hmm. It's basically you're feeling like I need help. Or I don't know how to do this on my own. And you're supposed to hit that because if you Mm -hmm. had all the answers, you wouldn't be in the spot that you're in. So it's okay to not know. So, you know, it's it's almost like a push-pull of these expectations but also grace. Mm. And when you find yourself there, you're sort of in a spiritual weight room. So, you know, any of the athletes that are out there or people who, you know— either still are or used to be, you recognize that there was a certain level that you performed and it was based on the amount of training that you did. Mm -hmm. But what happens when you get out of that training? Maybe your season is over and you're relaxing or you just haven't worked out in years and you go back and pick up some weight. You go through a period of soreness, Mm -hmm. right, of muscles breaking down. Um, And if you stop there, you realize you won't hit your goal, but you go back. You know, now, physiologically, it's lactic acid buildup that you have to push out of your system. Mm -hmm. But spiritually and emotionally, it's the same thing. We're now having to rebuild muscle fibers, and now we're stronger. 
So now we're able to get through this stage where when we tried this 10 years ago, we didn't. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's, it's a growth process and it's celebrating the small successes, but not getting too confident. Mm-hmm. That's why I mentioned the humility piece. Yeah, right, right. And yeah, and I think what you you mentioned too about it being my health or my self care involves trying to help others too. That those it's a weird paradox, you know, because I think when especially uh, when I'm in that shame or I don't want to, because I think this and I think this probably a lot of these principles probably are pretty universal. I, I imagine are. addiction maybe turns up the volume a little bit or makes it a little more dramatic or theatrical, but, <laughs> but, um, you know, so when we're in that space of, uh, I can't tell anybody this or, but it's like, I would much prefer to just sit in my house at my desk and read a book about it and get better that way <laughs> and yeah. not have to take the emotional risk of t- talking to other people about it, trying to help other people, you know, all the potential for rejection and failure that my mind is going to produce and in that whole series, but but it seems like that, from my experience, that seems to be pretty necessary to the process of growth, that we can't really do this thing, whether it's addiction or any other sort of spiritual growth, we can't really do it on our own. It doesn't seem like. Or, it's essential, and yeah. it was designed to not be done on your own. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is, and, and you know how people will say, you know, you reap what you sow or karma. Yeah. I think really what those principles mean are, let me show you what this looks like from the other side. Because interestingly enough, I've never met someone who's battled addiction who didn't say to someone else, it's okay to talk about it. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, you have to talk about it. Yeah. But then in the same moment, not want to talk about it. Yeah, right. But they, they can see it from that other perspective where someone you know, needs the support or needs to be heard. It's just a whole lot harder. Apparently, and I, I agree with this, it's a, it's a lot easier to be the giver you know, yeah. than, than the receiver Yeah. Um, because then you're acknowledging a weakness. And, and I probably would say this, you know, if I could have, you know, the women who are listening just put on earmuffs for a minute, Yeah. you know, for the men that there's this idea of strength being tied to, you know, pulling up your bootstraps and keeping a good face and keep, keep walking, you know, but, you know, there's an Asian principle that, that basically says that the strongest man is the man that knows he needs help. Mm-hmm. And that's a very tough principle to learn because in, you know, in weakness, there is strength. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's I think that's very hard for our male clients mm-hmm. or just, you know, males in general. And like like we talked about this is kind of applies beyond addiction, but for It's transferable. Yeah, right. Absolutely. So you this you, I think you said this is your the first time you've worked in a residential it is. treatment center. Yeah, so I that that kind of connects with what you're just saying, right? And I I've heard you speak about this before that, you know, you can't hide that. You can't hide who you are 24-7. No. You, you might be able to through an hour therapy session. That's right. You are who you are wherever you are. And only the people that are most close to you, this is why family members are so critical in this, really see what's going on. So for the family members that are struggling with how to love and support while you're hurt, and broken. I will share this. You know, if I were to drop a glass in the kitchen, let's say I was trying to get a glass of water and I dropped the glass and it shattered, 
you know, one of the things I wouldn't do is try to pick it up by gathering it with my hands because I mm-hmm. too would be cut. Yeah, right. However, if I took a broom and a dustpan and swept it all up and threw it away, what will I find two and a half years later when I'm barefoot in the kitchen? Yeah. <laughs> right? One of those pieces of glass. One of those pieces of glass. <laughs> yeah. And, and we have to look at the family member that we're mm-hmm. loving as broken. And we're trying to pull this stuff together with our hands, wondering why, why are they hurting me? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that's what comes with pulling together brokenness. So mm-hmm. that's why boundaries are so important. And that's why getting people to help, you know, is so important. And so that therapeutic community that we have, like the word therapeutic community doesn't even begin to share the wonderful, meaningful set of relationships that come from this little microcosm of the world that we've created here. But it's exactly what I mentioned when I said with my instructor, you know, Dr. Rosenzweig at Emory, when he said, you won't learn from me. It's not even the therapist. He said, you'll learn from your peers. Well, guess what happened when I walked into Mar? Mm. I spent the first four weeks doing nothing but living in the communities. Um, I mean, I didn't spend the night here, but every day I sat in the groups I was a part of the counseling. I was a part of the community to the point where I became a part of them, you know, and that's where the magic took place Mm. because the face that you've had to put on for the world is not, you're not able to put it on here, nor do you have to. And so once you're able to actually show who you are and have someone look at you and say, I love you, Mm. I care about you, and we're going to be okay that is the most freeing um, experience that will almost bring you to tears that I just revealed my absolute ugliness and someone said, you're beautiful, mm-hmm. you're strong. You know, who does that? Yeah. Mar does that. Yeah, that's beautiful. And the irony of that is usually they love you more, right? I think we were talking about this the other day, right, that – you really don't have a valuable relationship when it's superficial. Yeah. It's only until you've really revealed the essence of who you are. You've been ugly. You know, you've been, the makeup's gone, you know, the, the grooming is gone, and someone sees you for who you are, and you see them. It's in those moments when you're most vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Once that happens and a crucial and critical and uncomfortable conversation happens, those are when the most meaningful relationships are formed. Mm-hmm. You know, think about your best friend or think about that child of yours who, you know, you do anything for. You went through some pretty unattractive, uncomfortable, embarrassing moments with them to get there. And we almost create that, but we don't do it in a way that's in your face. Mm-hmm. It's Remember that equifinality? Yeah, right. It's your time, your journey when you're ready. We have people who'll sit in these groups for weeks and not really be ready to say anything. But you know what? They're listening to others, trust, and it works. And maybe it's not the conversation in group with the therapist. Maybe it's back in the community. But it's still magic that's happening. Absolutely. I hear that over and over again, having these conversations with alumni, that some of the most Mm life-changing conversations were on the back porch smoking, you know, and Mm -hmm. it's like, then you finally say like, you know, I don't... I don't know if I can do this anymore mm-hmm. and or or whatever it is, that that's when sometimes the surrender really happens and it's not to discount because all the the groups and everything setting that up you know and like you said people are listening and but it's like 
when you can really let your guard down in that community environment with the people that you're living with, that you're cooking with, that you're going to the grocery store with. Right. Um, yeah, it's just a, it's a beautiful thing because you need, I don't think we even intend to hide ourselves sometimes, but it's just so automatic Mm -hmm. that you need kind of that 24 hour structure to really give you the chance to relax. Yeah. There are people that will encounter you here and you're trying to get well, but the mm-hmm. things that you've said have inspired them. Yeah, right. And so now they're going off and, and having life because of you. So sometimes it's not even, you know, just you having to go through the hard thing of getting your life together. You get the joy of, you know, contributing really in a meaningful way to others, mm-hmm. getting their life back. And to me, if that's not one of the most earth-shattering, mm. awesome things that we get to experience by being in a community, I don't know what is. That's awesome. Yeah, it just speaks to how interwoven all of our, you know, collectively us getting better. You know, it, it's like it's so interwoven with and, and getting sicker too. So we see that with the families before clients get mm-hmm. here. And then we also see it with the families or we see it with the communities while they're here that, you know, as they're getting better, they're helping other people get better. And then we see it with the families afterwards. As family gets better, the client gets better, and then they're kind of teaching each other. And it's like it's just we're all we're all so interwoven, you know, in yeah. our our well being. Um, and we can't just get we can't get better on our own. No, it's just it's not designed that way, and mm-hmm. it doesn't last that way. Yeah, you know. In addition to something we had talked about earlier, um, I came by your office, and in addition to the um, the community using the community as a therapeutic tool for change that's something you really like about mar has anything else kind of jumped out to you as unique about mar that excites you about about being here well there's honestly i is an anomaly i've not seen anything like this before so we kind of spoke to a little bit of that earlier when we said you can't hide here mm-hmm. and i don't even know if those if that's the right language to use because it sounds almost intimidating yeah right but it, it's not that it's just that you know as i mentioned the world kind of requires you to put on a face mm-hmm. but here you know when you're ready you're allowed to let that down and so what's interesting is if it's not the um, the therapist, you know, the primary counselor or the residential manager, because everyone has these distinct roles that are really designed to be specific on where then how they help. But it's, it's the community that the magic happens because, you know, you can't BS your way through things anymore. And doing that actually has hindered you. Mm-hmm. So when someone can call you on it, but not do it in a judgmental and intimidating way, they're just saying, hey, you know what? I know you're saying the reason why you used was because of this one stressful scenario, but in all actuality, you know, I kind of call on that. Mm-hmm. And so when you, and I've seen guys kind of look and, and ladies kind of look to the side and like, you know, yeah, you you know you're right. Mm-hmm. I kind of tied all of my use to when I went to concerts. Yeah, but you know, and and some of it is creating a safe space to acknowledge it, but some of it is you weren't even realizing you were hiding in that area. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's kind of these epiphanies that happen, and sometimes you watch it happen in someone else, and then you're sitting in it going, "Oh my gosh, yeah. I was doing the same thing." 
You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's when you start to unfortunately or fortunately feel some of the guilt and the shame mm-hmm. because then you recognize, well, gosh, my mom was the one person I could talk to and I hurt her. Mm-hmm. You know, she's always been the person who accepted me when everyone else rejected me and even she kicked me out. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's when you you want to be mad at her, but then you recognize what you did to contribute to it and then you want to sit in shame. Mm-hmm. But then you're in a community that, you know, there's no reason to sit in shame. Right. Because this is work being done and and you were doing that because of your disease. Yeah, right. And so now, now that we understand it a little more... Let's not sit there and beat yourself up over it. Mm-hmm. Let's move forward and heal through it mm-hmm. and understand why were we doing that and why did we make those decisions and what do we do differently now? Yeah, it's great. And, and the way you just described it too presents, it's like when you're in community, the chances for um, those having those moments are just infinite. It seems like everywhere you look, people are having moments like that. So you, it's almost like you can't not... It's like you're you're going to be confronted with what's been coming up for you. Well, the environment is established that way so that there are learning opportunities in every walk, even when you're cooking dinner right. with your, you know, your roommates. Um, even when you're at the camp, at mm-hmm. Camp Donnie Brown throwing Frisbee or playing mm-hmm. volleyball, like there's moments that are therapeutic even in that. Yeah. Even when you qualify for therapeutic leave and you go home, you know, for the day or for the, you know, the night with your family, there's therapy even in that. And it's like, Mm -hmm. it becomes a constant environment where you get to be safe, heal, grow, and contribute to others doing the same for the entire time that you're here. Meaningless things really are meaningful, even if you don't see it. Right. And it's beautiful. It's really beautiful. Because then you look back and you're like, wait a minute. Yeah. Even that was something that was helpful for me. Absolutely. You know, when you say it's ripe, that's an understatement. Mm-hmm. It's designed that way. Yeah, that's right. And I don't know that, I mean, not to knock any other programs, get get, get help where you can get help. Mm-hmm. We partner with a lot of other organizations in the community who are on the front lines and fighting this disease. However, this place is different. It's rare and it's special. And um, it requires something different. And while it's easier to look at a place that's maybe 30 days because it fits into the work model and your goal, mm-hmm. it's one of those things where, you know, you're going to live a really long time on this earth. It's okay to set aside this time for something this critical because it's not only going to affect you, it'll affect your family, it'll affect your legacy, mm-hmm. and it'll affect the rest of your life. Absolutely. That, yeah, you said so many good things there. And I'm just remembering, too, I wanted to ask, because I know DBT is a big part of your approach as a clinician. Is that right? I think so, I heard that. So generally, there's a therapeutic model that you use as a clinician, and they discourage you from having an eclectic model where you're just pulling from everything. Uh-huh. However, you can't just kind of have a one-trick right. pony either. So for me, I'm very systems-focused. Okay. Systems in terms of when I see a person I recognize I'm not just seeing the person. Mm. I'm seeing the family of origin and all those beliefs and core values that was poured into them as a young person. You know, I'm seeing the relationships that they had and how they impacted them and any baggage they may still have. So that's one of my primaries. But we use a series of 
um, scientifically, you know, there's randomized placebo-controlled data that shows that these things work, Mm -hmm. whether it's in trauma or whether it's in specific to substance use or just in the therapeutic approaches. But one of the things that we have here is DBT, so the dialectical behavioral therapy model. And so in in short, what you're looking at is understanding how we operate as people. Mm. So we have an emotional side. We just do, and we feel things, and, and that's where sometimes we'll make our decisions out of our feelings. I don't know if you've ever seen, there's a meme of a a wolf and he's jumping after this bird, but it's off a cliff. Right. Right? (laughs) And so the focus was on the bird, but not really on Mm -hmm. the environment. Have we ever made decisions like that? Absolutely. And then we crashed off the cliff. But then there's that other side of us that's just logical, analytical. And we'll find that there are people in our lives that kind of lean towards one of those Mm -hmm. ways, right? Well, what what DBT does is say, hold on. Between that emotional mind, we don't want to lose all of that. We don't want to lean fully into that only. And that logical mind, also not wanting to lean into it fully but pull from that, Mm -hmm. is a wise mind. Mm -hmm. And what it does is it recognizes that those facets are all important. But how do I make a wise decision that does still pull on, you know, what I'm thinking and feeling, but it also addresses where I am and where I am in this moment? So... We have that as a part of our clinical programming. So DBT is one of those models, that holistic approach. Mm. You know, we're going to be doing some really exciting things. Um, we're bu- I don't know if I've even shared this with you, but all three programs that we have are going to be growing gardens. Oh, that's awesome. So we are going to be earthing. I don't know if you've ever studied earthing, but there's no, something about having your hands and your feet in the uh, dirt yeah. um, that ties you to kind of the natural side of things. But imagine we're growing some of the things that not only are going to contribute to our nutrition, because we're going to be bringing some people in to help us with that as well, but as you're cooking, kind of moving you away from, I'm doing, you know, pizza rolls tonight, yeah. you know, that you, you grab some of the herbs that you grew. Yeah. So, it's, I mean, even that will be a thread through being able to understand that you've created something. Because guess what the garden's going to demonstrate? The process of the time it takes to sow the seeds, to cultivate mm. it, and to grow the harvest. Because that's really what Mars is doing. Mm-hmm. We're taking that time that you need to actually grow a new you. Absolutely. That's beautiful. And that's, that's something that's you know, we're so disconnected from those essential realities of, you know, agriculture or farming that like our ancestors were a lot more yes. in touch with. And there's a lot of wisdom there. There's you a know. lot of wisdom there, even in how we do relationships. Yeah. They take time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's great. I'm I'm really excited to hear that. Anything else that you've got that you want to share or plug or or maybe you want to keep yeah, keep so, some. <laughs> so, some of that stuff I've got to keep to my okay. chest. Okay. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. Because I, I have a, a, a myriad of ideas. I'm sure, um, yeah. We are going to be releasing a little surprise that's going to come out around Ooh. the holidays. You'll see it in the Mars store. Awesome. That's going to be birthed from one of our programs where our current clients are going to pour into this wonderful project that um, folks will be able to use to help them when they are still in the stage or in their own home or their office and they're not really ready to say anything yet. Mm-hmm. They'll be able to use this tool um, and so that's their way of doing something that will help them now, but also will help others. So I've got some a lot of neat things that as a team we're going to do together. Our brainstorming sessions are just wonderful. That's great. Very intriguing. Yeah. Exciting. Yeah. Um, so the last question I usually ask people on this is um, if you had something that you could pass on to people that are listening from your own hard-won 
experience living on this earth, what would it be? Well, it's hope that even if you think there is no way I can undo what I've done or what's happened to me being a family member of, of this person, there's no way. That is not true. There really is nothing that's impossible. Um, that please do not lose hope. That it may take time and it may and it will take work. But I promise you, when you plant these seeds in the right environment, they will grow and you don't have to be in this place anymore. It's just going to take the critical step of reaching out. Mm -hmm. If you do that, I assure you, this can be fixed. And that's what people don't realize. Some people just think there's no hope. I promise you, there is hope. And it's here at Mar. Thank you so much, Kimberly. This was such a pleasure getting to know you and hear hear about your energy and passion and, and a little little sneak peek of what's a, what's ahead. So I really appreciate you taking the time to do this and well, share. Thank you for it. inviting me. Um, I'm really excited about being here and I really appreciate the opportunity you gave me to even talk to our our, our community. It's, it's meaningful to me. Thank a- you. Absolutely. Well, it, it seems like a great fit. So we're glad to have you. Thank you. All right, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening to our show. If what Kimberly was talking about resonated with you and you do feel like you want to talk with someone, please feel free to call our assessment counselors. It's totally free. They're professional clinicians, so it's completely confidential. And their priority is to get people the help that they need, whether it's with us or someone else. So you can reach them at 1-800-732-5430, or you can just even go on to marinc.org, our website, M-A-R-R-I-N-C.org, and send them a message through the chat box in the bottom right-hand corner. Thanks for listening to Stories of Recovery, a Mar Recovery Resources production. I'm Matt Shedd. The executive producer for our show is David Tate, and Angela Edmonds is the associate producer. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.